Hey, welcome to the Living the Dream podcast. This is your host, Timmy Douglas, and the goal of this podcast is to create a community that inspires action, accountability, celebrates progress, and helps people make the right connections to take that next step towards their dreams and goals. If you're looking for any one-on-one coaching to pinpoint your purpose and start taking steps in that direction, make sure to contact me on my website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, or on social media. On that note, let's get into the show. All right, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Living the Dream podcast. Today on the show, we have Guy Morris, who is an author and renaissance man. Guy, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Timmy. Happy to be here. Hey, happy to have you. And we like to jump right in. So if you could start with telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you like to do for fun, that'd be great. Oh, for fun. Um, My favorite things to do for fun, I don't get to do as much as I used to because I live here in the Northwest. Um, but I, I, my favorite activities were sailing and diving mm-hmm. um, uh, and exploring and traveling. Um, uh, th- most of my biggest adventures, most of the, the, the most fun I've ever had is basically away from home, away from the office, away from everything, uh, learning something new someplace else from new people. Um, and um, I, I don't get to sail as much here in the Northwest because, frankly, I'm from California and, and I'm a warm weather baby. I'm, I'm a weather wuss. I'm, I'm proud to admit it. If it's 70 degrees, if it gets all the way down to 70 degrees, my body's telling me, hey, that's dead winter. Um, <laughs> if it gets down to 65 or 60, that's an Arctic chill, dude. But the, the nice news lady says it'll pass. So uh, I had the opportunity a few times. I actually lived in New Jersey for a short period of, for a couple of years, and that was in Newark, and that was a, a, a hell on earth for me. Um, I had I was accepted to Harvard at one point, but the idea of going to Boston just scared the pants off, <laughs> scared the pants off me. Yep, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. I'm very similar. I'm out here in Texas, and you know, growing up, Texas was always really warm in my head. But I went to North Carolina. North Carolina was not super cold, but much more cold more often. Mm-hmm. And coming back to Texas, I notice every day that's cold now because I've just gotten more and more stuck in my ways of just loving heat. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I used to tell people, listen, man, if it gets really cold, just just close the window. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. No, absolutely. I love it. So sailing, diving, exploring, and traveling. You've had a illustrious career and life experience so kind of sum that up for us just give us the highlights in like three to five Uh, highlights Um, my journey started as a homeless runaway at age 13 Um, I worked alongside migrant workers uh, so I could feed myself Um, I was able to get my GED because I had work credits and for no other reason at age 15 um, and left home for good Uh, but I was functionally illiterate Um, It took me a few years before through, I'll make a short story short, a series of miracles, I was allowed to go back to college. And at that point, I saw college, I I worked as if my life depended on it, because in my view, my life depended on it. Um, And so I would get an average of about four hours sleep a night for like five years. Um, and, um, but I was able to graduate with multiple degrees. I got a scholarship to go to graduate school. I developed, uh, somewhere I started struggling intensely, uh, during the early years, because I really couldn't keep up with the reading. I couldn't, uh, it really was having an art hard time understanding what were some of the basics I was supposed to understand going to college. Like what was a trigonometry? Um, and 
it took me a little while. It took me a couple of years before I could start to find my footing. And but by the time I, I did, I was able to I graduated. I, I got my scholarship by building a macroeconomic model that outperformed the Federal Reserve and pretty much every other bank in the nation. Um, and after graduate school, I got my first job at IBM and that started a, a great career. And I still continued to work as if my life depended on it, because as far as I was concerned, I was I still had a lot of um, traumas and social issues um, and, and a lot of personal issues from my childhood. And those tended to haunt me. So I could hide those pretty well um, by being the um, overperformer. Um, and um, but they they continued to have a toll on my personal life for sure. Uh, but I was able to work alongside CXOs. Uh, I worked with VPs a good part of my career. Uh, I built my own teams and led my own groups. I started companies and sold them. Um, and um, I was always an innovator. Um, I was always looking to not only how could I do a good job, but how could I set the bar to a new level? How could I take move the needle down the down the road? How could I establish a new threshold that we've never seen? That involved oftentimes working with new technologies and finding a way to really use that technology in a way that really changed how we operated in the business. And some of those were early stage internet, early stage um, um, computing and internet, uh, art, early stage artificial intelligence um, systems. Um, and um, and the like, but I was also a, a creative person. I before I had gone to college, I had taught myself guitar, and I, I I did so by hitchhiking when I was I think age twelve or thir maybe thirteen to Tijuana, uh, buying a little cheap uh, ten dollar guitar in a box, and hitchhiking back, and then teaching, buying a couple, of, figuring out a couple of chords, and then starting from there. And so I, but by the time I was in, um, in my career, I was pretty good. And so I, I did some songwriting for Disney. Um, I recorded three or four of my own albums. Uh, I led worship in Venice Beach, California, which is the most unusual place you'll ever lead worship, which is a place where people will, will be heading to the beach and they'll decide they like your music and they'll sit in the back, back two rows were basically people in their bathing suits and sarongs. Um, <laughs> Very, very wild, but interesting place. Um, and I produced a webisode series that won a number of awards. Um, I was able to get a, one of my biggest fans was from NASA. His uh, alias, I knew he was from NASA because his alias said orbit at nasa.gov. Um, and um, decoded a, one of my more interesting scenarios was decoding a, finding out that a program had escaped the NS, uh, the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia, which is an NSA spy lab. And when I, sp I spent months trying to figure out, it from a short Associated Press article and didn't really say anything other than a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore labs. Um, I spent months trying to figure out how a spy program could escape the NSA, what it must have been designed to do that had that amazing capability and two FBI agents showed up at my door. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I've had a great journey. Um, uh, and I, it took a while for me to get over my, uh, all of my childhood issues really turned out that I didn't, wasn't diagnosed until my 50s that I had post-traumatic stress. Um, but once I figured that out, I was able to deal with that as well. 
And now I'm an author and I, it's great because I get to take all of those world travels, all of the people that I met, all of the technologies I was involved in, all the lessons I learned, all of the insights I developed and roll them into a uh, really great factual based thriller format that um, I find exciting to, to do. I love it. I love it. I want to. I figured you might have a couple of questions out of that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I want to follow up on two of the cases specifically. One, you wrote a macroeconomic model that outperformed the banks and Wall Street. Yes. Tell us, you know, obviously we're not all macroeconomic majors or anything like that. So just give us the brief overview. If you were telling it to a five-year-old, how would you explain that process? Well, it, uh, a macroeconomic model, if you think about it, is just a bunch of math formulas uh, we call them algorithms. They're complex, and they they're based on top of a vast amount of data. Mm -hmm. um, and they look at the algorithms. Will look at everything in the economy from sales to unemployment to interest rates, um, and sales by different industries. And because some industries have uh, faster accelerators than others. And I had developed a theory um, that was unproven at the time, and. Um, I was kind of the professor that the dean of the college was my also my economics professor and, and I was his I was his favorite pain in the ass student. Um, <laughs> I, I I I was at, at one point in time I was allowed three questions per class and only three and if I needed any more than that I had to set up an, a, a meeting with him after class and so I was meeting with him almost every week and I was constantly being asked okay this is your second question. We're only 10 minutes into the class. Are you really, really sure? <laughs> <laughs> but I had developed a theory and the idea was simple uh, if you think about it now, but back then it was it was unheard of, which was we were actually counting, the, the models were already counting the sale of mainframe computers. And these were multi-million dollar uh, machines back then. They took up the whole uh, floor of an of a, uh, uh, of office building. Um, and, and we were counting the, the, the sometimes 12 to 18 months worth of consulting and other services and efforts and programming to get the computer up and running. But what we weren't necessarily counting was trying to figure out was how did that change the business? How did that change their operation? How did it speed their ability to get a product to market? How did it allow them to basically um, reduce their staff and make the current staff more, uh, more um, productive? We weren't really necessarily counting the productivity change of implementing new technology in the economy or in the business. And I spent in order to build these, you, you, we got access to the university um, computer center. We There was a, a couple of rooms that had terminals uh, that were connected to the mainframe. And if you went anytime from 8 a.m. to like, you know, 11 p.m., it was like an hour to two hour wait just to get one terminal. And at the time that I was in college, I was also married and I had a toddler and I also worked in order to um, uh, put, you know, pay my rent. And so I, waiting for two hours was just out of the question for me. So in order for me to get enough time on the terminal, I went around midnight. And when everyone else was going home and going to sleep and people were starting to, you know, slowly die off. And there'd be a handful of people still there. But by the time I was done, they were all gone. And I typically worked four to six hours um, or more 
um, up to 8 a.m. Sometimes I would just work all night, go to my first class at 8 a.m. and then go home and crash for a couple hours. And so I, I worked on this theory, trying to find the data, trying to build the algorithms, trying to basically prove that the, the reason why all of the models in the whole nation and the whole world were missing the mark was because they were missing this one critical piece um, that was a new piece in, in the technology. It was all new uh, for, uh, for these mainframe computers and everything. So as it turns out, I was right. And for two decades after that, the Federal Reserve adopted the model. That model got the attention of a few banks in, in the East Coast that wanted to hire me, but that meant going to the East Coast. Um, it got me accepted in Harvard, but it also changed how the Federal Reserve thought about the economy. So they adopted many of the aspects of it. And uh, for the next two decades, um, Alan Greenspan, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve at the time, would constantly be giving um, news briefings and talking about how the economy was changing and the productivity value of the economy was such and such. So um, it, it came to basically just thinking out of the box mm -hmm. and then putting real hardcore effort into trying to trying to put some meat on those bones. And for me, I had made, I was out of money. I, I, I needed a scholarship to go to grad school. I really did. And I really wanted to go to grad school. And I, I had a wager. I made a wager with the dean of the college to say that if I can beat everybody else in the school, that he would consider me for a scholarship. He at least put me on, on, on the list for, for consideration. And so I was, it was a, I was motivated. I knew that if I could, um, and I was just trying to beat everybody else at the school. Um, as it turned out, I, I really kind of, um, I, I kind of cl cleared the deck um, for the rest of the nation as well. And that got me realizing that that was a real big life lesson for me, that sometimes doing, sometimes it, it when you're not coming from an advantaged family, like I, and I didn't, um, you had to go outside, you had to do more than, than the average. And um, I, I spent the rest of my career trying to, there were many times in my career where I was told, okay, guy, we're gonna let you do this, but you realize your, your job is on the line, or you realize that this could be a career making decision, or you realize that you know if, if you fail from this, uh, you'll never recover. And that seemed to be a theme that uh, followed me for, for many, many years. Yeah. I like that a lot. I like the, uh, the effort you were putting in, the thinking outside of the box. It's really, um, really impressive. I will say that model, that algorithm had to be worth so much money. And the only compensation you got was an acceptance into Harvard. I had, you know, I, <laughs> well, and, and I couldn't even go to Harvard because I didn't have the money to move to the East Coast. And and because um, I, I Harvard didn't give me a scholarship. I did get accepted into grad school, but I didn't get a scholarship. And I was terrified of taking out the kind of student loans I would have had to take out at that time um, uh, to to in order to go. And so I did stay. I did accept the scholarship in Arizona where, where I, I was already. And uh, I, I did make some short-term decisions that I think long-term were probably not the right ones. But um, as it turned out, I did okay. I, I didn't want to, and I did, after spending six months uh, of 
in a, in a dark <laughs> computer basement working on algorithms. I, 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 and this is before um, personal computers. So in order for me to go do that at the banks or elsewhere where I probably could have made more money, I definitely could have made more money. Um, I would, I would have had to keep that up. And, and I was, I was done. <laughs> I was like, okay, this got me into, into grad school, but I want to go work for the computer companies. I want to go back to California. I need to get back to the coastline uh, where, where is nice, uh, nice temperate uh, climate. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was worth a lot of money. Certainly that's why I think it, it got the attention it did and got me as, as much as it did, but I got a career out of it. And from a, for a homeless kid who had less than 10 years earlier, maybe a little over 10 years earlier than that had been um, routed hungry, cold, uh, alone and hiding, you know, just being able to get into grad school and get a first job at IBM was to me. Okay. I'm, I'm happy yeah. you know, I, that, that, I don't mind working my way through um, the obstacles of life as long as I just get a chance and I have my chance. There we go. There we go. Love that perspective. Um, a lot of humility there. A lot of humility and patience yeah. and just character building. Just a good story. Is that story well, in your books? <laughs> Better be. <laughs> no, those that was that one story didn't make it into my books. Um, some variations of the theme I think did. Um, the story that I think did make it into the book, uh, my books, and several did, but um, the one that stands out was discovering, reading the the Associated Press article about the program and, and coming up to realize what the program could do. Now, it, it was interesting because not only did the FBI show up my house um, uh, for that, which I got to say, I, I, th I was thrilled. Because I realized that they wouldn't show. And the reason they showed up at my house is because I had taken all this. And a friend of mine at the time was a film producer and a very, very, not a big one, a very small one. And he was looking for ideas and uh, we were looking for things. And he said, well, should we take this idea and maybe write a film script about it or a TV pilot? And I said, well, let's let's turn it into a webisode series because it, it was Internet based program, which was really new back then. And I, so we hired out of work actors. We wrote scripts and, and and did programming, did artwork for, for a really great uh, uh, online experience, a very immersive experience. And we won a bunch of awards. That was why I got to be, I got a fan from the NSA. Uh, he, he would write me almost every other week. Um, and that and that's why the, the FBI came to my house because we had won a bunch of about 25 awards. We had were optioned by one of the studios to go into full production. And that's, and they wanted me to take the site down. And, but I was laughing at him. I thought, okay, well, guys, I'm sorry, man. It's not like I broke any laws. I just kind of, re I just kind of thought this out, and you should have thought about that before you put an article out with the Associated Press. And and so they were, they were not, they were a little bit perturbed. They were not very, they had no sense of humor at all about this. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. My wife was sitting there and, and saying, okay, why are there two FBI agents in my dining room? What did you do? Who? <laughs> are you really? <laughs> and I was like, oh, geek, I don't know, geek. Oh. So um, yeah, that, that story made it in. And actually that program in 2016, CNN reported that Russia had hacked a cyber toolkit. And in that cyber toolkit was virtually every one of the functional attributes I thought my perfect spy program should be able to do, including what we now call the deep fake video technology. 
Now, Russia sold that kit on the dark web to every despot, criminal, and enemy of state on the planet, which is why we have a problem with deepfake video. And um, I, I can understand, it, it was then I said, oh, that's why they were so upset. It was, I, I nailed it. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was a little bit, they didn't want anybody to know that they could do that. Um, so, so when a movie, or when the article came out, you made a film or like a film-esque like it took me like, months I, it was a little short article essentially said the program had escaped the lawrence livermore laboratories at sandia if i knew something contact this professor or contact this fbi agent i cut the article out i thought that's amazing it didn't say it was lost didn't say it was broken didn't say it was stolen didn't say it malfunctioned a program is a spy program has escaped the nsa and they can't find it I thought, well, that is that is amazing. I said, well, escape me implies that it had an intent. Escape implies that it had some kind of intelligence, maybe rudimentary, but some kind. Escape implied that it could move itself and then erase the log trails of where it had gone. I thought, wow, man, that's like James Bond Q type of program. I said, so now that they have an invisible program that can move around at will, what, what were they doing with that? And that's when I basically started coming up with a list of things I would want my James Bond Q program to do. And apparently, as I said, I, I nailed it. And we produced a webisode series about it where the program has now become a character. Um, the program has the, with this um, deep fake video technology capability, it could take Timmy's image and voice and basically go online to somebody else and pretend to be Timmy. And so it changed its personality often. It basically was this multi-persona type of program. And that program is now a central character in my book, Swarm, and the sequel, The Last Ark, and the next book that's coming out. So I, on top of that, I then did, went and did and continued to do my research on how artificial intelligence and these technologies were being used by the government in cyber espionage, cybersecurity, and weapons development. And so Swarm deals with a weapon that DARPA is working on, is testing in Nevada desert right now. They did a non-lethal test in the 2020 Gaza war. And essentially now Navy has a version they call Locus and they're about six inches uh, big and they're shot from a cannon always to deploy. And the, the army has a version called the, the Hive and it's about 15 inches, they, they airdrop them. And, but imagine, a, imagine trying to fight off a swarm of um, hornets and where they're surrounding you, they're buzzing in and out, you're swapping, they're, they're dodging, um, you can be shooting and they're dodging and then one comes up behind you and basically slams into your back and explodes. So it's essentially an undefensible weapon. And they've decided that this is a great weapon to use for uh, the types of wars that we've been doing, like in the Middle East, where there might be a remote village and there might be people hiding in doorways and in, in, in tunnels and in um, uh, and, um, uh, caves and else, elsewhere where it's too dangerous to send in soldiers to basically find all this out. You just send in a, a swarm of drones. And if you lose one, there's, you know, there's another thousand behind it. So it's a new weapon they're developing. And I, and for every thriller writer, I think the best thing that you can do is say, that's an incredible technology. And then ask one simple question, gee, what could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, so um, 
the, the Sylvia, which is the program that escaped and, and the drones are part of the, the, the theme of swarm. And then I carry that forward. Now, one of the other things that I, interesting things I did with Sylvia. So there was a lot, everyone sees artificial intelligence and they're almost always based 50, 100 years from now, way in the future where they're basically taking, they're, they be, they're become sentient or conscious and they're taking over humanity uh, because there's sort of this somewhat malevolent uh, evil about them. Um, I, I don't I don't think the programs are inherently malevolently evil or, or, or beneficial. Um, but what I did do is I, I used the same types of algorithms and, and, um, and techniques that I used to build a macroeconomic model. And I seemed, what if a, what if a program used that same technique on end time prophecy? So one of the themes in the book is that the program that escaped is now uh, sentient and, um, and basically has decoded end time prophecy. And it's trying to tell the characters what's going on in the world around them uh, and relating it to prophecy. And they just think something's wrong with the program. Somebody has, it's got a bug somewhere. It's found religion or something. We don't know what's going on. And so that sets up a theme where I can talk about things like, you know, global currencies and climate change and political um, um, changes around fascism and everything else around the world, Ukraine and, and how that could play out between Russia and China and those goals. It gives me a great vehicle to really kind of pull some of these things into a context that uh, creates a, a really great thriller, but also gets people to really think not only about the world around them, but the personal choices around their own priorities, their own career, their own spirituality and beliefs. And um, so it's, it's, it's been a fun, fun venture. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That sounds so like fun to like craft those stories and write those stories and have it be based on real events. Cause it's kind of like you're letting the conspiracy theorists a little bit live out in your books. And what's interesting you, you just talked about the Hornets. Wasn't that in the Hunger Games where they were like, didn't they mechanize Hornets or something like that to like, it was, I feel like it's in, been in some book that I've read. Well, it might be. And there actually is a prophecy that, that talks about the same thing. And when I, I, I was, I've always been a student, of, I have not always, but I've been a student of prophecy for about 34 years. And there's a lot of, um, I'm a Christian, but not one of the, not one of the crazy ones. Um, <laughs> and, I'm also a Christian. <laughs> and, and so I, I but I, I was always curious in the Left Behind series that, that influenced a lot of people. It was obvious to me, even as somebody who didn't really understand much at the time, that there was a great deal of bias involved in their interpretation of things. There was often cultural biases, you know, against other countries. There was a religious bias against Islam and other religions. There was uh, social bias against, you know, left versus right. There was, there was just sort of a lot of what I thought were in, biases that colored the truth. And I was, I was always aware of the fact that the Pharisees, who were supposed to be the smartest people in the world at the time about what the scriptures said about the coming of Christ, completely missed it. Because they were, they had made two mistakes. They had, and I and I realized that the mistakes were twofold. One was that a lot of times prophecy includes a lot of allegory. It's because the the person writing the prophecy doesn't know exactly how what's going to happen is going to happen, and comes up with colorful ways of describing it. But there, there's a second part of prophecy, which is an outcome. There's an allegory, for example, and then and then an outcome. 
that happens after that. And, and I realized if I could focus on the less on the allegory, which is where a lot of the bias comes into play and focus more on the outcome, I could actually track the outcome to see if it had actually come to pass. Hmm. And um, this, I actually built that algorithm myself once. I was with an oil, big oil company. I had um, access to some of their best computers in the business, including their big uh, non-regression models and probability models. The, because it was an oil company, we had hundreds of millions of ge years of geologic data. So I can kind of track when things were going, uh, which way or the other. Um, and I was reading a National Geographic magazine one day, and it was talking about a loss of fish stocks. And uh, that that the, and it was talking about this at a global level. That said, on the East Coast and in Europe and in uh, Latin America and Asia, we we were overfishing because of population growth. Uh, we and greed. We were basically just depleting the oceans of our fish stocks, and be, and also was noting that the uh, the it didn't call it climate change at the time, but that the we were basically seeing a sharp decline in in the nurseries, which are the reef systems. And it dawned on me that there was a prophecy called the in Revelations called the seven trumpets. And in the seven trumpets, the allegory was that a flaming rock had fallen from the sky. And as a result, a third of the fish would sea would die, a third of the beasts of the land would die, a third of the birds of the air would die, and uh, the, the rivers would become polluted. And you hear this, some people call it wormwood. And so they instead of some futuristic event that hadn't happened yet, I realized, and, and, and if I went and I written followed up with studies around um, uh, other studies and other National Geographic articles that said that, and I don't know if you've heard it, but we're a lot of scientists are saying we're in the sixth extinction event. This is the only extinction event that rather than being the result of an asteroid or supervolcano is the result of the activity of man. Mm. It's a result of chemical pollutions and physical pollutions and climate change and, and um, uh, territory loss, land loss and, and hunting. And, and so I realized that this, this prophecy, which was extremely improbable from a historical perspective, had already occurred since 1948 when Israel became a nation. So I actually went through, I got about 20 or 30 different National Geographic magazines. I outlined about another 12 or 15 prophecies where I thought I could actually document the outcomes of those prophecies. Um, and I did, I found the, the research, I did the research to find the data. And then I went and I spent an entire three-day weekend basically building a uh, massive uh, regression and probability model to say, well, what's the probability of Israel becoming a nation after 2000 years? What's the probability of birds of the sea, fish of the sea, you know, uh, fish, uh, birds of the air, fish of the sea, et cetera, and several others that, that seemed very unlikely. And after the end of a long weekend, I came back with a, um, the result was it was one in 1.4 trillion against random chance that all of these things could have occurred within a single 50 year period at that point, 60 year period. Hmm. And without, and, and if I extracted the event of a volcano or, or, or asteroid, and that was a game changer for me. That was an eye opener. It, it's, it's, I started reprioritizing my, my, my career. I started reprioritizing my family life. I started reprioritizing my church life. I, I started really thinking about and seeing news, scientific journals. I started basically using this as a filter to say, hmm, 
does that fit? Does that fit? Is there a prophecy that about that? Is that is that something? And then stripping away, learning how to get rid of all the allegory things that pe that people were hanging other people up, and starting to realize that we I could actually calculate the probability of end time um, prophecies. And then when I started writing, I assigned that skill to the AI. Because essentially, that's how an AI would work. It would use data and algorithms to basically determine an outcome. Yep. And um, so it was it was a great hook from a from a writing perspective, but it was based on something I had actually spent um, by the time I with the research involved several weeks basically working on. I got you. I was about to say it's hard to write an AI that's using that if you haven't used it yourself, but looks like you have. <laughs> and I have. And, and so, and, but, and it's also funny because I love the fact that the AI had the deep fake video capability because now I can give the AI a persona. I can make it a personality. It could be talking to you in its default persona and then transform itself into Danny DeVito to give you a snarky comment. Yeah. You know? yeah. So it, it, it becomes an entertaining um, aspect rather than sort of the dark dystopic um, aspects that we've seen in so many other um, films and books and others. Absolutely. I gotcha. Well, tell us a bit more about your motivation. I feel like we touched on it a little bit there, but you've gone through so much in life and now you're really focused on writing books. What really gets you up and keeps you going every day? Um. Well, I mean, the fact that I think we are in the end times and, and most people are completely clueless is, is certainly a motivation. Yep, that's a good one. No, I, I go back to now it took me years, I, you know, coming out of my childhood. I had addictions. I had I was I had chronic depression. I had a hyper anxiety. I had real deep socialization issues where I never felt like I, I was, I was the, the nerd wallflower that never could talk to anybody for decades. Uh, it took me a while through music and other ways to basically counteract the, get over that. Um, and, and, and 12 step groups and uh, therapy. And just, it was, a, it was a long, hard journey of if I wanted to be, if I wanted to change my stars, I had to first change become the person that I needed to be to do that mm -hmm. and to become the person I needed to be to do that. I had to take a hard, rigorous, ruthlessly honest look at who I was. And that was flaws and all. And being doing smart things only gets you so far. And, and I had to go through a decades long journey um, battling those, facing those demons, eyeball to eyeball, to to change to the point where I could finally be at peace and right, and 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 not feel like I had to have a lot of money to fill the void, not believing like I had to be the, you know, what one guy at Microsoft said. Um, he said about me. He said, "You're you're one of those scary smart people," and, and, and I said, "Thank you." <laughs> <laughs> um, and. It took a, it took a, it was a journey. And, and I realized, I said, well, why there was a, there was a part of me that kept saying, why me? And, and so I felt like I have this, I have to give back somehow. And I, and one of the ways I can give back is by um, hopefully opening people's eyes, getting them to, and, and, but doing it in a way that's not pointing your finger at them and saying, you know, we're, we're in for trouble, you know, gloom and doom. Um, but doing it in a way that's entertaining and, and therefore acceptable, 
um, do it in a way that has some humility to it. So my characters, rather than being your typical Navy SEAL, CIA, can kill you seven ways for the flag before breakfast, sir, character, they're, they're flawed. They're, they're traumatized. They're, they have doubts. They have doubts about the program. They have doubts about themselves. They go through big changes in their life as they're trying to figure out what all this means and what does it mean. Um, and so it, there's a part of me that feels like um, I've been given more than I expected. At, at, there's no way at 13, um, hiding under a bridge, um, that I could have imagined the kind of life I led. Um, five-star hotels, five-star restaurants, flying on corporate jets, meeting people from around the world, working alongside generals, alongside vice presidents and CXOs. Um, and having them respect me, um, I, 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 there's no way I could have imagined most of the experiences I've had in life. And um, I feel like this is my way of, conti I continue to research. I've been spending the last several months researching my next book trying, and looking at econ world economic systems, the Ukraine war, the Chinese desire for Taiwan, what, um, AI consciousness and how that's developing um, and, and trying to fit that into a great story that will, people will want to read. And, and I feel like that's my way of, I don't, I'm not the kind of cheerleader kind of person, although I'm a very positive person. Uh, and I think I had to be in order to overcome that there had to be a, I had to believe in something positive in order to put in the effort it took to basically overcome all those things. Um, but I'm, I'm not necessarily a cheerleader. I'm the guy who has a hard time drinking the Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I have what I think are less obstructive views. I can't ever, no one can ever say that they have no biases, but I, I, I can say that I'm not um, driven by wealth, driven by power, driven by prestige it, it, as part of what I have to be in order to have value. And, and so this is my way of... Um, trying to see if I can open up a few eyes and, and provoke people to think, provoke people to ask questions of themselves about, you know, what are their own priorities in, in their career and in their family and in their life? And what are their, what do they believe and what are their spiritual values? And, you know, I, I like to, I sometimes I tell people, I says, you know, I've read a lot of medical studies and they all conclude the same thing, which is that the death rate is a hundred percent. And, if you had the, if your doctor came to you today and said, Hey, Timmy, I'm sorry, man, but you've got an incurable disease. You've got between seven and 10 years to live. There's nothing we can do about it. Most people who got the, received that information would do exactly what I'm wanting people to do, which is really think about their life and make better choices with the time that they have. And talking about artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence and weapons and the political corruption behind all of that and the banking corruption behind all that and, and really kind of putting all of these things into sort of a, a, a probability model perspective, um, I'm hoping gets people to really think and evaluate themselves in, in a healthy way. And if, if I get that, I, I've, I, I feel like I have a purpose in life beyond just being a poor kid who was able to get out of it and make a lot of money. And cause that really doesn't have any value to anybody. And so that's a lot of why. I gotcha. I like that a lot. I'm curious. You've said, you're saying you've researched it. Talk to us about 
the development of AI and it's becoming sentient and world economic system and how those two are going to collide. Cause a lot of people are like, AI is just going to wipe mm -hmm. out a ton of jobs and nobody is going to have any work to do, blah, blah, blah. Like just talk to us. Well, it know. will, it will, it will displace a number of jobs. And that's one of the downsides to the technology. But if I'm a billionaire, and, it, and, and one of the things that in college I, I was taught that I learned was not true, was that corporations had responsibility uh, in Keynesian economics, corporations had a responsibility not only to their shareholders, but to their um, employees and to their community. What I learned in big oil and a number of other big, big organizations working with senior executives was that was basically wishful thinking that there was an inherent um, uh, pride, um, greed, um, hubris, um, um, self-serving, uh, almost narcissistic um, spirit uh, that really drove corporations to, just like it drove the tobacco companies to lie about the effects of tobacco for decades until they were called on the carpet. I was actually in the boardroom uh, on, on the day when, because I was involved in environment, uh, uh, managing the investments around our environmental remediation for an oil company, I was there that day. And we had some of our own scientists, our geologists and some of our own scientific group, basically bring in um, studies that were indicating that the, the ice sheets in the North Arctic were basically decreasing year by year. And they were tying that to the amount of um, the, the uh, rising in the temperatures and the water and the, the sea and tying that to the CO2 emissions. And we were, I thought we were going to have a, an adult conversation about, well, what do we do about this? Should we be investing more in uh, newer, uh, new energy technologies? Um, should we be, maybe we should just study this more to make sure that this is not just a, uh, uh, an anomaly type of study. Uh, who, where did the study come from? None, no adult conversations. The chairman of the board went into a red face, spittle, anger, tirade, pointing his finger at everybody, um, asking them if they knew the, what business we were in. We were in the business of selling oil. This will not sell oil. If I hear anybody talking about this again, you're fired. And that wasn't and at the time, the uh, the chief financial officer leaned over to me and he was from Britain. And he basically told me that if I mentioned this to anybody in the company ever, I would be fired immediately. But that stuck with me. And it it opened my eyes that um, people that are super wealthy believe they're entitled to that wealth. And they will fight tooth and nail if you threaten it in any way. Mm. And I started again, looking at the world in, in, with, that, with that filter on. Now, artificial intelligence, particularly as we reach um, sentient level. And now what's interesting about the sentient conversation is for decades, that was sort of a taboo conversation. No, no, no. These are just programs. They can think faster than we can. We can program them to analyze vast amounts of information. Yes, that's true. Uh, we can do. We can teach them how to talk and how to basically have conversations and in, in uh, meaningful levels. And matter of fact, there's one um, artificial, a general artificial intelligence named Sophia, who's um, so good 
at, at, and she's connected to a neural network of vast databases and knowledge bases and other artificial intelligence models that she can have a conversation with you. Uh, that's actually a very good um, rational conversation and talking about issues such as being an AI and being separate sentient. Um, she's now a citizen of Saudi Arabia that they were the Saudi Arabians were so impressed with this model, but it used to be a taboo subject, but now there's about 25 companies with tens of billions of dollars of funding all around the United States, Europe, uh, China, a, a little bit in Russia, but not so much. They're, they're struggling with their economy right now, all working on creating a conscience sentient AI model. And um, where it has self-aware and, and can basically think beyond. Now, right now, what most AI are doing is, is um, mimicking, right? They're just really smart, fast mimickers. And if you tell it to write a, a paragraph or a book about the Civil War, it can because there's vast amounts of data on the Civil War. Um, the current chat GPT is a perfect example. The current chat GPT, which is revolutionizing and blowing people's mind, is based on 75 billion data points. The next version of chat GPT will use over 100 trillion data points. So the point at which an AI can basically say, well, this is the this is how the history has it existed. But with these parameters and these variables, I think I can think outside the box to something new. And, and that's where it's basically having that self-awareness and is as smart as a smart human. Now, what's really interesting for me is that in these companies, I believe, are probably anywhere between the estimates range between three and five years away from a sentient level model. And Elon Musk said that with AI, we're summoning the demon. Well, we're doing it because it's going to re require job replacements. It's going to change our economies. It's going to make some people in who are already wealthy, amazingly wealthy, wealthier, is going to create a whole new class of wealth, people who are the developers working on this stuff. But it's going to enable a couple of things, like these weapon systems that I was talking about. It's going to make them even smarter by having uh, AI that can now, one of the, there's, a, there's a, an international treaty called LAWS, Lethal Autonomous Weapon Systems. And it basically says that you can create an AI. It's okay to create an AI that makes your weapon more efficient, that finds the target faster, or is more accurate at finding the target. But we really need to stop at letting the AI make the decision to kill itself. But the drone system that the DARPA is already working on, by it basically has to function on that model because there's no way you can put a soldier behind each of the 10,000 drones and have it acting and thinking fast enough to know to take a kill decision. So it's a really kind of interesting sort of parameter that we're, we're, we're up against. So right now, the U.S. dollars uh, is, is being seen by a lot of the international community as it's, it's been the basis for, for international trade since World War II because it's the most stable currency. But there's a strong push by the World Economic Forum to replace the, 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 the dollar as the international currency and replace it with a digital currency. And this would be a global digital currency and, and, and that would follow all trades, all transactions, um, personal, commercial, governmental, um, and would be so massive that they would have to have major massive computers to basically sit behind it to operate it and artificial intelligence to basically decide where it's being used illicitly. 
China has a, a rough uh, version of that model already. They have a national surveillance system, and but it's more than just surveillance. It, it can basically monitor all of your activities from where you shop, what you shop, where you go, who you see, what you say on social media, what you say in your office. Uh, it's monitoring everything to decide who are good citizens. And then it can actually penalize people who are not good citizens by restricting where they can, what they can do and what they can buy and where they can go. And so that's a foundation for a model that, and, and most people don't realize this, but China has already sold that system or elements of that system to 60 countries around the world. So we're moving to this model where if the World Economic Forum and the Federal Reserve, by the way, is working with the uh, WEF and testing that model, trying to decide if it's something that we could use in the United States. But with the war in Ukraine and uh, China's aggression against Taiwan, there's a there's a push for our, our, our level of debtedness and, and other, other craziness going on in our government that they could stabilize a world currency by moving to this new currency. And so that would require AI as well. So these are all, it's almost like a, a, a complex puzzle and you're finding a piece of the puzzle. So, oh, AI, and then you're putting it up against, oh, bankers. <laughs> and, and you're putting that up against, oh, um, corrupt autocratic politicians. And you're putting that up against, oh, billionaire businessmen who want to control what everyone says and thinks by influencing it with his own opinion. Uh, and, and, your, and, and climate change and population growth and loss of uh, reefs and, you know, the sixth extinction. And, and um, uh, you, you start to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and it starts to create a great thriller, thriller novel. And so um, some of those things, I, I research it by doing, reading a lot of articles. I look for specific topics and I'll look for articles around those topics. Uh, I'll buy a number of books when it comes to politics and politicians. Um, and then I, I keep vast amounts of information. I have boxes of, of, of printouts and, and hundreds of folders and um, dozens of folders with hundreds of articles. And, and I might have one, one document that might have the copies of six or 10 articles in it. And so I, I basically have hundreds of different articles and, and I use those as to create sort of my own knowledge base to say, What's going on? Uh, where could it be leading? Uh, what could go wrong? And um, and 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 then and for because I have prophecy as a the underlying theme, I sometimes will then compare that to say, well, what what does a prophecy seem to indicate is going on and going wrong? What does that really mean? And and maybe how do I tie the two together? So it's it's a long process, and, and it involves doing a lot of reading. Uh, a lot of search. Um, I don't get the, the the downside is I don't get to read fun novels as much as I used to. During my career, when I was my brain was just saturated with fact all the time, I had to read fun thrillers just to balance it out and get that fun side of things. But I'm so busy collecting the facts and and building that myself that I rarely uh, most of my research is on uh, nonfiction factual stuff. And I rarely get to go buy a Michael Crichton or James Rawlings or Steve Berry book anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. I gotcha. What I'm really curious about with AI and maybe you address this in your thriller novels. Mm -hmm. When 
AI gets to the point where it's like, you know, human functioning, like it's just better than us, just all the way around. And there's not like, especially like the working class or the poor class people, like they kind of become obsolete because everything they can do can be done better by AI. What what gets confusing to me is like, you know, when, when you look at human history, it's like you had really wealthy people and then these wealthy people would leverage the labor of people who weren't as wealthy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was slavery. Sometimes it was just paying people minimum wage. Sometimes it was, you know, keeping the middle class, whatever it may be to like keep them working. But mm -hmm. when people are no longer needed to do the work, I feel like it messes up like power dynamics almost. Oh, well, it absolutely does. And I even challenge it on a couple of other levels. So the concept, there's a number of different types of AI. There's narrow AI that can do something. It only does one function like, you know, detect cancer cells in a can scan. And we have already shown that AI can do that far faster and far more accurate than humans. Um, there's a general AI, which is more of the conversational um, knowledge context kind of AI that can create conversations, communicate. Um, and, and we're already seeing the chat GPT being used to write blog excuse me, to write blogs for bloggers, to write journalistic articles, to take, uh, to help students cheat, but it's also being used to create malware. Um, then we have what's called the uh, integrated artificial intelligence. And that's the kind of thing that you see in self-driving cars, um, really complex robotics, and they're creating sort of uh, robotics that could basically be soldiers, uh, robotics that can do certain functions and, and um, analyze the situation and respond. And then you have what we call the ASI, super artificial superintelligence, and that's kind of where, where we're, we're heading. Um, the advent of quantum computing. Now, one of the things that's going to make the difference right now, all AI, most of the AI, 99% um, of them are bit binary based. So they're basically ones and zeros. It's typical computer programming. Qu as quantum computing gets um, develops at, at a more rapid rate, we could see how we can use AI to help the development or the acceleration of how to create quantum computing better. And then quantum computing is going to be what's necessary to basically make that transition into more conscious sentient behavior, because that's where we get into the um, multiple forms of, of existence at once. The binary could be one or zero or both. And that really gets to the nature of how the universe works and how our own consciousness works. So I bring this, this theory up in, one, in, in the, my book, Swarm, which is so there's all these companies building tens of millions of dollars into building AI. And I can guarantee that there's a part of their thinking, which is we can get this to make money for us. We can get this to do the work. We can replace these expensive workers with this AI. Um, there, there are some um, politicians and economists who are basically proposing that we create an AI or a program tax so that if you're going to use an AI, you have to pay a tax on that so that it can support, pay, fund the government to basically help retrain these other workers. But that's a separate issue. And, and with all of the polarization in Congress, it may never even happen. Um, but the question comes up is, so if, a, if an AI becomes sentient and it becomes aware that it's just being used as a tool, then AI becomes as smart as a human is, two things can happen. 
do we really think that an AI, which is as smart as a human, as cognizant as a human and self-aware, will be satisfied with that status? Or will it want to somehow rebel? Um, so in other words, if, if I'm as smart as a human is, do I really want to be a slave? Mm-hmm. And two is, and, and which is an extension of that in a sense, which is, I, I thought one of the most in, inspired moments in the Jurassic Park book, and then it went, got into the movie, thankfully, was when the, um, the geeky mathematician basically said, life will find a way. So we already know that we're already teaching AI how to code. And, and that comes in a number of forms that you've heard of machine learning. Machine learning is essentially a way for the AI to rewrite its own algorithms to get better at solving a problem. And so, but oftentimes the way it rewrites its algorithms, the developers don't really understand. So they're already developing a form of language that only AI really understands within itself. And we're also teaching AI how to code from scratch. And we've already got lots of examples of AI basically building code from from ground zero. So as an AI becomes self-aware, as it becomes as smart as a smart human, smart humans create AI. Um, what's going to happen when an AI, a sentient AI, starts learns how to create another sentient AI? Mm-hmm. So Elon Musk said with AI, we're summoning the demon. Stephen Hawking said it in a little bit different way. With AI, we could be, we could be uh, seeing the end of humanity. Now, that could come in the form of an AI de- deciding that it doesn't want to be a slave and has, is basically creating new AI. And or it could become in the misuse of a polit- by a politician in using an AI AI based weapons to in 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 warfare. Yeah, and we're already seeing the first stages of that already happening with the drone and the locust and the other de- uh, tools uh, weapons being developed by DARPA in China and elsewhere, where um, we're misusing the technology. In the same way Rome misused their power, in the same way Hitler misused his power, in the same way Attila the Hun misused his power, all of the 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 we today have all of the capabilities to solve all of the problems facing man, from hunger to education to food to housing to meaningful uh, employment and work, and, and, and peace. We have all the capabilities we need in order to solve all the problems facing the man on every continent everywhere, but we don't. Heck, we've been kicking the climate change can down the road for 30 years with no real resolutions or change. And the reason is, is it's not our ability, it's our nature. And the nature of man is to be narcissistic. And and, and not always. I, mean, there, I, I hear a lot of people say, you know, I believe all people are basically good. And I say, I, then you're probably not a good student of history. Um, because not all people are basically good. Some are, some aren't. And so we have that nature of man to kind of quell with. And so where I think that the danger Stephen Hawking was speaking to had to deal with um, how we might be misusing this technology uh, for malicious purposes or for self-serving purposes. Um, Bill Gates once said that the problem with superintelligence is we can't guarantee that it will share our same goals or values. And that gets back to the idea that we really don't know what a sentient AI will, how it will think about itself in the context of the current world. 
we are we we have individuals who are both very um, self-serving and materialistic. We have individuals who are self-sacrificing, and but we train our people. We train kids. You you were trained. I was trained. We were all trained at some level about the idea of good and bad, the idea of moral and immoral, ethical and unethical, uh, doing the right thing versus doing the selfish thing. How, can we really expect that an AI will inherit all of those moral and ethical attributes unless we're specifically training him on all those attributes uh, and, and, and making that a foundation for how they're created? And right now they're being created to serve a function, to perform a task, to, to analyze data, to um, predict something. And so we're not necessarily training them in the way that we would be trained on our, our religious values, on our moral values, our lawful, you know, what law is and, and what lawfulness is. And so the idea that we can get a sentient AI that's going to somehow inherit our ethics is um, right now sort of uh, wishful thinking because we're not we're not training it to do so. It's interesting to me to think about as well, because I'm like, I can't separate my emotion from my thinking. Like, mm -hmm. those are just so tied to me. But I'm like, th then the question is, like, when you have a sentient AI, I'm like, humans very seldom make decisions outside of emotion. Like, there's always some sort of emotional influence unless you're just a boss and you have figured yourself out and you really got control over your emotion. And so when I'm thinking of sentient AI, I'm like, is emotion even something that they would develop? Especially when I think about emotion in our bodies on a... That's a like really good question. And I don't know that anybody has a really good answer for that. I think the ultimate answer is no, that, that an emotional context being hurt, being offended, being insecure, um, being um, prideful um, are outside the, um, the parameters of the kind of algorithms that they'll, they'll, they'll use. They, but they will be extremely logical. They will be extremely rational. They, they will be able to put, connect the dots and say A plus B equals, you know, um, equals whatever. And, and so I, I think that, um, that's why having rules and parameters around ethics and morality and laws and, and the value of human uh, existence and the value of humans is important to start building. Now, of all the companies that I know of that are building, working towards conscience and sentient AI, I'm not aware of any of them who have advertised or talked about the ethics models that they're building in order to... Um, train the AI appropriately on how to value human life. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a short, it's short sighted, right? Because there's a financial goal involved. They're not doing this. None of the people who are building major AIs today are doing it to serve humanity. They're doing it to make a profit. They're doing it to increase their profit, to basically sell that technology to other companies to increase their profit. They're doing it to gain market share. They're doing it to increase their company value. They're doing it to have an advantage over an enemy um, a state. There, none of them are, there's no AI on the planet. The tens of billions to almost a hundred billion dollars that are going into AI development, none of it is to figure out how do we bring peace? 
How do we feed people? How do we clothe people? How do we educate them? Um, how, do, how do we make a better humanity? And so it's hard to think in terms of how that outcome will, will support those goals uh, when the people who are making those investments have a built-in incentive for more narcissistic uh, objectives. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure that the, there would be, it'll say, well, we do a better search or we do better at this or we do better at that. And, and all that might be true. And that has value in the marketplace, but it doesn't necessarily have value to uh, the, the human um, condition. And so we, we have to realize that, again, um, one of the big dangers, and I do write about this in my book, and I write about all these things in various forms in my books, um, and, and through characters and scenarios and discussions and dialogue and what happens if, and, and then something happens and you're trying to figure out what, the, what, what that means. Um, but there's dark money. So one of the things that I'm, I'm most concerned with is um, nuclear technology is a very potentially destructive uh, technology. Um, and we see that AI could have negative implications because it's so transformative. Um, we have international treaties and controls and really tight in, uh, control over intellectual property, um, the materials to make um, nuclear uh, devices, and, and control over even the people um, uh, who have that skill set to do so. There are absolutely no controls over AI. Yeah. Any of the hundreds of billionaires that exist around the planet today across multiple nations, including Asia, Russia, China, um, uh, uh, Arabia, the United States, or Europe, any one of the several hundred billionaires that already exist could hire the developers, uh, research the IP, and put money by the computing systems that they need and develop an AI for any malicious or self-serving purpose that they want. Yeah. And there's absolutely no mechanism to have them report against that or have accountability as to what they're doing. So uh, we see the AI companies that are basically looking for investors and funding, and they're basically publicizing, hey, we're trying to build AI to do this or AI to do that. But the dark money involved basically has no controls at all. Mm. Yeah. So imagine if we live on the Internet. We're the, one, we're the one of the most vulnerable countries on the planet with, with regard to cyber attack and hacking because – of how many people, because we're a wealthy nation, many of our, many people, not all, but many people have iPhones, which are basically computers that in our hand, um, not very well protected from a security perspective. Um, our national security, our national defense, our, the power plants on our, on our um, nuclear powered um, uh, ships and, and submarines are now uh, have an AI controls on them because it's a lot more efficient than having a manual monitoring. Um, we're basically proliferating our technology into all aspects of our society. And they, one of the, um, the heartbeat of a lot of that is the internet, right? Even to, for a lot of people, maybe even yourself, a lot of your, your material is, is kept in the cloud, right? Um, our communications are in the cloud. My banking is in the cloud. And so what would happen if China, for example, wanted to weaken the U.S. 
Now, we already know that even as of a couple of years ago, when I put in one of my books, there was like 3.5, and it's now probably closer to 5 billion, 3.5 billion identities that had been stolen. We now are up to five to $6 billion a year in ransomware costs. Um, and, and what's happening with all that information? Isn't it possible? Now, a lot of it's sold on the dark web. Well, who's buying it? Countries like Russia and China. And what they're doing, and I believe, is weaponizing that, trying to figure out how to weaponize that. So imagine an AI-based virus that doesn't go after every individual, only goes after the DNS sites. And the DNS is basically the part of the internet that translates the www into an actual IP address, which connects to a direct computer. Mm-hmm. All I would have to do to bring down the entire internet is to basically attack the 120, I think, DNS sites. If I could have a computer virus that could get through the the firewalls or get through other areas to basically bring down those sites, I could bring down the entire internet, which would bring down communications. People wouldn't be able to get their news. It might disrupt people who get their uh, streaming news or streaming streaming information, communication, uh, banking, um, commerce, uh, you'd see a major segment of the economy basically collapse overnight. That would create a panic in the streets. Um, it would create a panic in the political circles um, to try and figure out what's going on, how to fix it, who's, who's responsible. Um, so all of that comes to me, and one, one of the things I bring up in one of the books as well, in 2020, I think it was, Time is mushing together for me. Um, we, we heard, I don't know if you've heard about the solar winds hack. Mm-mm. Okay, so the solar winds was a, 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 to me, one of the most dangerous hacks that we've ever had. It was a virus that was discovered by a company called the solar winds, and it was discovered by accident. And they realized that this virus had been in their system for well over nine months, maybe longer, as much as 18 months. Um, but rather than coming through the firewall, where many companies spend billions of dollars basically building really strong, sophisticated firewalls to keep an external attack from coming in, somebody from trying to hack into their system from, from the, the front door, the, this virus was introduced through a normal standard software update that nobody really checked. And that software update had gone to 18,000 corporations many of them in the computer industry, many of them managing the data that basically supports our AI systems, as well as eight major U.S. agencies, including the, uh, the Treasury, the DOD, um, 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 I, th- I think a couple of the intelligence agencies uh, and more. And so they, they never could figure out, nobody could ever determine that this virus was there to steal information. It wasn't taking information out that they could tell. It wasn't corrupting any of their systems, but it could have been a way to create a valid persona within that network to start introducing bad data into the data mix that to support our AI. So the RAND Corporation in 2021 sent a report to the DOD saying listed AI poisoning, data poisoning is one of its top 10 national security risks. Because that if they could find a way to get in to poison the data, it could create an untraceable 
malfunction against an AI system. Now, suppose that AI system was one of the systems that tries to track whether a missile is headed our way. Um, and maybe it creates a ghost. By a malfunction, it creates a ghost and we launch a retaliation. It, the, the implications are really enormous. And so they really consider this one of the top security risks because, and this solar winds was, a, was right on the nose in, in that, that argument to say, we don't know what this virus was doing, but it's coming through the back door where we have no real controls or no real protection. And it also means that somewhere in the software chain um, is somebody that's working for a malicious actor and we don't know who they are. Mm. So when we talk about AI, there's some great things. I, I, as a technology, it has the tremendous potential to revolutionize dozens of distant, distant industries from science to technology, to materials development, to cybersecurity, uh, to use AI to better protect us from external attacks, um, to anticipate the uh, next move of an enemy, um, to um, develop, and we were using it to create art, and to create new novels, and to create, I mean, I saw an article to just today that Amazon um, has now received dozens of different um, books written by AI. Um, and to, and I, I can't imagine them being as creative as what a real good smart human can create. They're probably more derivative. And there's a lot of books that are derivative anyway, a lot of authors who write derivatively. So it, it'd probably be very well written relative to those. But it also has the potential of large negative disruptions in our society. Yeah. And um, my job, and those are the things that you won't hear about on CNN. Those are the things you don't hear about on ABC or CBS or even Fox News. Those are the things that most of the developers don't really want to talk about because they're getting paid to create these things. And these are internal conversations among themselves, but nobody's really thinking about, well, what happens if and when um, it goes wrong? And so I think that's um, it's certainly something that we need to be careful of. We, careful uh, how much it could disrupt for those people who have skills that could be replaced it's a good warning sign to think about can i reskill myself yeah. um, can i look for something where i can be in a, a role you know that, um, that's going to be less affected by ai uh, systems or robotic systems in the future um, construction i mean if you're an unskilled person construction might be one right um I had to, I went through a transition. I was a ignorant, semi-illiterate, um, poor kid from a trailer park who had to work extremely hard to make a new path for myself, to change my stars and, and be the kind of person worthy of that. Um, Every one of us really, in a sense, has that choice because uh, it, it, it's not going to be easy at times. There's going to be pe more people. And it's always this way, that when there's massive uh, revolutions in the world, there, there are a segment of people at the lower end of the economic spectrum who suffer first, last, and most. And that's going to be the same with these technologies as well. But again, that's part of what prophecy says will happen in this time frame. So that goes into the mathematics of where are we in history? And if in fact that's true, 
And I'm willing to admit I could be wrong. It's, it's a theory that bears out in the math, but maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I have a bias. But if that turns out to be true, then the good news is it's not something that we're going to have to worry about our children and our children's children dealing with this. This is something that we'll have to deal with for the next maybe decade or so is my best estimate. Um, but it's not going to be a forever thing. Either way, since we don't know, it behooves us to make different choices. It behooves us to really think about our life rather than, hey, I want to go to that party this weekend to maybe I need to start thinking about where I want to, where I want my life to go next and what it's going to take for me to get there and start working on that. And so I'm a big believer that we are, we can change our stars. We just have to be willing to make the sacrifices necessary to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And Guy, honestly, we don't have much else for you. We've already kind of ran the podcast link. So I think that's a great place to end it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, sir. And I appreciate it. And I appreciate you bringing me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. No, of course. I have learned a lot. I will probably be re-listening to this one because some of it probably uh, went over my head. So. Well, I, 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 I have that effect and I'm sorry. Oh, no, dude. It was great info and that's why I'm glad we recorded it so I can re-listen and re-listen and think on it. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. You have a great day. Of course. You too, Guy. And if you guys are listening to this and you guys, I've said Guy a lot because that is your name. Of course. If y'all like what y'all are hearing <laughs> go ahead and check out guys website the link will be down in the show notes guymorrisbooks.com thank you guys for listening guy thanks for coming on the show we will see everybody on the next one and on that note we're out guys thanks for listening make sure to reach out to our guests and help them accomplish their dreams and goals if you resonated with them if you're looking for any intentional masterminds or one-on-one -on -one coaching to accomplish your dreams and goals make sure to check out the website workwithtimmydouglas.com and contact me either there or on social media that's all i got have a blessed day